Material for the Brain, Conversations for Thinking Bodies. In this show, together with our guests, we explore different ways in which we can develop a meaningful relationship with our bodies and minds and respond to the current state of the culture in a quest for more integrated and embodied perspectives. Hello and welcome to Material for the Brain podcast. It's been a while since I've been releasing any content and it's partially due to the summer break that I took and it continued due to the unfortunate events that has been taking place in my home country in Israel. And today I've decided to release an episode to the podcast that is not directly connected to, let's say, the mission statement and the area of exploration that the podcast is typically focusing. But I've decided to release new content that is directly relating to the political situation in Israel, which is something that is very str- different in its nature than what I'm typically covering and discussing here in the podcast. So first, I would like to advise any one of you that is not interested in listening to my thoughts about what is happening right now in my country in relation to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, of course, to just skip this episode because, again, it's not going to be about the typical embodiment and life, so to speak, conversation. I would like now to give you a little bit of context for the release of this episode, I have initiated um, opening up a space for conversation with people who are interested to speak to me, specifically because I am from Israel. And I've had so far two conversations. This is the second one. The first one I haven't shared on the podcast, but it's available on my Facebook page. Initially, I didn't intend to release it on the podcast, but after having the second conversation, I realized that it might be of value for people to also listen it here. I am intending, intended, I am intending sorry, to continue the normal uh, release of episodes, but that will happen only later on. So in the next few weeks, I will probably release more episodes than often around this topic. And if you are curious, you are very welcome to stay with me. I would also say that if one of you, the listeners, is curious to talk to me about this topic, I'm very open to discuss it with anyone, regardless of your political intuition or what do you think about the situation. I'm just generally interested in listening, exchanging and dissecting the situation through the medium of conversation. So in this second episode that I'm doing around the topic of the conflict in the Middle East, I'm talking with Johannes Stolba, who is a colleague from Vienna. He actually asked me to be um, a conversation partner. And Another thing that is quite different than the typical episodes that I'm not really acting as the host. In this episode, actually, the role were reversed and, and 
Johannes was the one who was asking questions and leading the conversation and I was answering and sharing my perspective. That doesn't mean that this will be like this in future episodes, but in this specific one, that's how we have decided to initiate it. So again, if you're listening to the whole conversation and the urge to converse awaken inside of you, you're welcome to write me an email or to contact me on social media. I would just really appreciate if you also write what's your intention and why do you have the wish to converse with me? And that's mainly due to the fact that it's also very tough emotionally. It's not a topic that is just theoretical. It affects my life directly. And I want to still choose with who do I engage and understanding why you want to engage with me helps me with that decision. Having that said, I'm, I hope you will benefit and enjoy this conversation. I think it's very important, definitely from my own, um, let's say, ethnocentric perspective at the moment. So without further ado, here is the latest episode for your pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Matan, for initiating. I, I very much liked your idea of, of, of uh, initiating conversation around the topic because we tend to like uh, post stuff on Facebook, which I actually didn't do during the last weeks, but normally I also have spent too many hours on Facebook <laughs> commenting mm -hmm. and posting. And I liked your idea very much to just have a meaningful conversation instead. Yeah, maybe, maybe, you know, again, I don't want to be really the host, but maybe it is nice just that you take a moment just to tell everybody who you are and like maybe you can also share sure. the context how we know sure. one another sure yeah my name is Johannes Stolber I'm a psychotherapist in training uh, formerly I worked in the field of uh, information technology um, and yeah we know each other because we're dance we have been dance partners in in various occasions and settings and um, yeah as I said uh, I liked your idea of opening a conversation around Israel, and also I had a lot of, uh, I did a lot of reading recently, um, sparked by the events, the recent events on seventh of October, and so I felt that also the, like, the intention of 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 uh, taking this offer from you and and accepting it to have some conversation. Cool, yeah. I, pre I I appreciate that, and and I I must say that for me, like. On a personal level, it's really strengthening that people wants to talk to me. And, and I don't care if we agree or disagree, but to see that there are people that are willing in good faith to converse with me, that gives me hope. And I, I thank you for that. And yeah, I don't know. I, do, do, do you want to kind of carry on leading a little bit with some questions that you have in mind and we see where it goes? Fine, fine. Yeah. Yeah. I... Yesterday, I, in preparation for the talk, I wrote down, wrote down a couple of questions, and um, and then today, I uh, there there popped up another article of 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 this French. Um, it's an interview with the French. Uh, uh, I don't know who, what it what, what role he had, but uh, Dominique de Villepin, maybe you you heard him already no i think during the time of uh Jacques Chirac he was like a foreign minister 
or something of France. And uh, he gave an, an interview recently, uh, a couple of days ago or yesterday, I'm, I'm not sure. And there he says some some things which strongly resonate with me. So maybe we start with that because he also, that's a point that also came to my mind uh, during the last days. And he also mentions it that Israel actually um, had a, how to say, um, not a very positive attitude towards the Palestinian leadership in general, seemingly during all the most most of the time probably of the of the uh, since 1948 and uh, oftentimes wanted to get rid of the leaders of the Palestinian leaders somehow some way or the other um so maybe we can start with this question how how does this situation um look from your point of view is it would it have been wiser from your point of view to to continue with peace process like from oslo onwards or and to and to really try to cooperate with some kind of palestinian leadership rather than to um somehow try to murder them or try to get rid of them or try to like uh, finance uh, their opponents like hamas for instance in the yeah. early days after after um, Yasser Arafat yeah, so, away. So, so first I want to to say that I'm far from being an expert when it comes to the, to the history and I want to tell everybody who is listening to know that uh, I might be wrong about many things and that's why that's why I would try to talk to share my perspective more like principles of thinking about the conflict rather than to be like anecdotically precise with the with the facts because i might get them wrong and and that's not gonna help anybody um so so yes <laughs> in principle i'm more for conversing with leaders of opposite opinion than murdering them that's as a principle i i would say now within this statement i think there are certain boundaries that i think that are maybe good to to share so if we talk a little bit about uh, a little bit about the 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 history and of the establishment of the palestinian leadership you mentioned yasser Arafat, and maybe that's kind of a certain point that uh, i am aware of the details of the history that is good to mention that the the plo the palestinian uh, liberation movement was founded in was founded by Yasser Arafat in 1964, which is three years prior to the Six Days War, in which Israel occupied the entire uh, state of Israel and part of Egypt and the Golan Heights and also areas that were west uh, East Jerusalem that were in Jordanian control. And 67 marks the day of the beginning of the what we call now the occupation even though that from the palestinian perspective the most significant event is the nakba of 48 so this is like just brief history now why do, do i mention this 64 uh, is because the the creation of the liberation movement which for many years uh, w w 
where the um, the unelected representative of the Palestinian uh, Palestinians. It started in '64, which means that the desire to liberate Palestine started before the occupation of '67. So, so from their perspective, even before they were occupied by Israelis in the territories that we recognize now as Palestine, meaning the West Bank and Gaza, from their perspective, there was a need for liberation of Palestine before this occupation. Hence, the known slogan, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. So, so this kind of just plays a certain perspective. What does the Palestinian leader, uh, liberation movement was about? And uh, the tactics that Yasser Arafat and the, the Ashaf, Ashaf is the abbreviation in, 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 in Hebrew, which stands for Irgun Shihu Palestine, which again, it's just in Hebrew, the same uh, meaning, the, the Organization for Liberation of Palestine. Their tactics were uh, also, uh, during the Intifada, were aimed towards uh, military and civilians um, simultaneously. And for many years, Itzhak, Rab, uh, for example, Itzhak Rabin, which, were, which he was the uh, initiator of the Oslo Agreement with Yasser Arafat, there is very, there is a very famous interview which he says, "I will only meet Yasser Arafat on the battlefield." Eventually, of course, he changed his perspective, and the initiation of the Oslo Agreement took place. And you know, like then he was murdered, and and some people in the left still kind of hold the perspective that that the murder of Yitzhak Rabin was also the murder of the whole potential for peace. Um, so this is kind of a little bit brief history. And I think that the reason why I bring it up is because if we talk about principles, I think there is a certain boundary to what any liberal person can stand for. And that's kind of, that's a very painful boundary to recognize. And I'll try to map what I mean. So, so I think like, if you hold certain liberal values and you see yourself as a human, uh, as somebody who is uh, uh, yeah, identified with li liberalism, you probably stand for universal human rights. You probably um, stand for the right for every people to govern themselves. You probably stand for uh, you know many many other things that we can mention right now. And and in that regard, you you probably also stand for for freedom of speech and and all the 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 plurality of positions that we can have. So as the famous uh, uh, phrase that I don't agree with you, but I will fight uh, for your right to voice your opinion or something like this. You know, you know what? You, yeah. you, I'm I'm probably yeah. uh, rephrasing it not uh, precisely as the as the quote goes, but within that freedom, within that kind of liberal position, there is a boundary which is any actor that decides to be a liberal in their perspective. This is the boundary that liberalism has to enforce. As long as you want to play within the liberal boundaries, you're welcome. But if you uh, are for illiberal principles, we have to say, sorry, you're out. You know, and the obvious example will be like, I don't know that, for example, in Germany, if I'm not mistaken, it's illegal to, to promote a, 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 Nazi ideology nowadays. No, it's like this. Yeah, it's really yeah. like I don't know what's the sta status in Austria, but like that's yeah, a very it's the same. Yeah. It's the same. No, so that's a yeah. it's a very clear boundary saying sorry, like uh, freedom of speech, but 
uh, you're not allowed to go there. And to my, esti to my estimation, and that's uh, something that, again, I, I, I want to separate between Palestinian leadership and the Palestinians, because it's two different things. First of all, because the, beside Hamas in Gaza, nobody have ever elected the, the PLO to be the representative of Palestinians. It's not, it wasn't a, a democratic process that we can treat the Palestinian leadership as in the same mm. way that you might treat the current government of Austria. Mm. You can also say the same on Hamas because Hamas was elected once democratically once. And since the first mm. act that they did was to murder the, the political opposition and to, yeah. and to establish a, a, a military dictatorship. So again, th these are certain boundaries that goes behind liberalism. And if you don't, if you don't agree with me, there is something wrong with, uh, with how you think. And I'm not pointing directly to you, honest, but to everybody who's listening. So. So, so the, on, on, the, on the level of principle, when we, when we talk about why there is a tension, maybe, and that's kind of a, a, a thought experiment. I'm not sure if, if that was what was going on within the Israeli leadership minds, but from a theoretical point of view, from a principle base, I would say that I can see the problematic, um, uh, I, I can see what is problematic negotiating with somebody that doesn't hold similar values mm. but have different interests than you so if i tell mm. you look my mission statement is the destruction of your state and the establishing of my state that's that's my mission statement i want to liberate palestine from your existence mm. i'm not interested in the uh, uh, my main value is not the um emancipation of my people but the destruction of your people that's a boundary that any person who is honest with their liberal values will say, sorry, that's not like acceptable. I cannot negotiate with you. So that's from a principal point of view. But sometimes I think that life and principle have tension and, and I can understand why Itzhak Rabin was, was willing to go into the negotiation table with Palestinians and, and to try to compromise something in order to achieve a greater good. Because it's obvious that if that you cannot get peace if, you, if your highest value is justice. They, they don't come along together. There is, there is a certain amount of justice that is necessary because, you, you know, like, I wouldn't want to make peace with... Uh, Adolf Hitler, <laughs> but I, I understand that to some extent I have to compromise my intuition and my, my sense of justice if I want to promote peace because, uh, um, because yeah, la, la, you know, I, I'm, yeah, that's, I, I, that's, may I, yeah, may of course, I of course, from there, please, yeah. pl please feel free to interrupt me because <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I don't know, um, sure. you know. Yeah, that, I'm glad you you say that uh, about justice and peace because because uh, last time when we had a very brief uh, textual discussion uh, about some incident in the in our dancing community, it was also um, partly about justice and and what I remember from from that time was which made a, what made a strong impression on me was your 
even bringing up the term justice in that scenario back then and so so i'm very glad that to hear that from you now because that that's also my 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 belief i strongly hold that um we cannot we have to go at least of our concept of 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 very well defined um, for our be also because it's always a subjective uh, uh, point of view and and so there's there's no such thing as justice could be argued on an objective level and so i strongly agree with you to 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 have peace we need to let go of that probably yeah and very interesting uh, um your thoughts about uh, how the palestinian leadership actually was not a democratically elected one and also probably not sharing the same values uh, rather um, voting for the for the annihilation of of the jewish state and so very hard to to even get into negotiations so this is a uh, thought um came up uh for me during the last days this someone said it i i don't remember who it was but like the if the daily experience the palestinians have um and the historic native they are brought up with and they are find themselves in uh fit together can you so, repeat you can know, you repeat the, the last sentence they, they, been... so there was this this state from somebody I don't remember who it was that basically if the daily experience of a, of the Palestinians fit together with the historic narrative they are brought up with like we are suppressed we are you know like from the Nakba on we we have been driven out of our homelands and we are suppressed and we have been this oppression from the Jews etc etc that's the historic narrative they are brought up with Muslim. And if that fits, if that suits the, the daily experience they have, you know, like living yeah. in a, like miserable conditions generally or, or yeah. what, then, then it, it's, it's a strong point of identification. Then identification go on and is strong. So yeah. One of those, um, the daily improve of those people and then it's not anymore probably it's not over to, to continue like that probably so and that brings us to the point of um maybe that's the chance also with uh with a person or a group of people who don't share your values at the at a certain point in time and and strongly oppose you maybe even uh, ask for your for your uh destruction um then this is not like everything human and like everything on this earth is it's not a static thing you know what i mean it, it could mm. change theoretically so so maybe that was also uh what it's a grabin realized or or maybe it was also just because he realized that that yasser Arafat was somehow getting into a more moderate position whether this was just pure strategy or whether it was wholeheartedly we will never know probably but... i mean you know i think like that uh, i mean we cannot know intentions of anybody on the world because yeah. uh, this is an internal thing but we can interpret it the facts and then think mm -hmm. and when it comes to yasser Arafat, at the end when he had the opportunity to agree to a 
to a peace proposition that was extremely generous, much more than the Yitzhak Rabin position of Ehud Barak, it chose to, uh, um, to uh, refuse and initiate the Second Intifada. So, ah, can, you, can, so, can, you, can you just uh, put me, uh, just inform me a little bit around this issue, because I, I'm not aware of that. So, I've been so, aware of that. Yeah, so uh, I I'm not uh, uh, I cannot uh, pick up exactly the dates right now, but it's something that uh, I, I I invite the audience to to Google. But uh, uh, so it was after the murder of Yitzhak after Rabin. the murder of of Yitzhak Rabin, there was a mm-hmm. change to a right wing government afterwards, and then uh, um, which, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it was Benjamin Netanyahu. Or I don't, again, I'm, I don't cut me with the details. I was pretty young, and I'm, I don't remember that precisely but uh, when the left wing party of the avoda uh, uh, came back to govern the the state with Ehud barak as its prime minister he reinitiated the the peace process peace process and mm-hmm. this was not the uh, this was not the uh, um was it Oslo or there was another no, phase? No, Oslo was before. It was the, yeah. the Rabin. Uh, yeah, yeah, so I don't remember Oslo, in yeah. which uh, uh, city it took place. But again, mm-hmm. uh, Ehud Barak made a proposition that was more generous. Uh, he kind of gave, uh, I think, if, if I'm not mistaken, con- um, uh, the c- control of East Jerusalem and many other things. One of the things that Ehud Barak wasn't willing to accept is the right of return for the refugees back to their uh, original uh, uh, place, uh, original uh, homes. And Yasser Arafat declined, which of course he has the right to decline because you know, like maybe he has different uh, position. Uh, and, And basically like he chose not to compromise his sense of justice for peace. That's what I would say. Like, so for him, a sense of real justice for the Palestinian would have been a greater uh, offer more, than what Ehud uh, yeah. uh, uh, Barak uh, offered, and he chose not to do that. Plus, he initiated the the second intifada, intifada mm-hmm. which, uh, to some extent, also destroyed. Um, the belief in the peace project for many people on the left in Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that happened is that uh, in the Oslo agreement, Israel agreed to uh, finance and supply the Palestinians with weapons to build up their own police forces. Yeah. And in the two, uh, I think it was in 2000 and 2002, the second intifada. Uh, I was Early just two thousands, yeah. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah, some, yeah. In two thousand two, there was the big operation of re, re. Yeah, it started in two thousand, I think, and in two thousand and two, Israel reoccupied the West Bank. And and one of the things that happened is that the Palestinian police uh, uh, shot on soldiers with the weapon that has been supplied by Israel mm. a few years later. So there was, you know, this kind of was a mm. politically, it was a moment in Israel that many right wing. A conservative had the intuition, ah, you know, we should have not trusted yeah. them. And that's kind of yeah. the, that's the, 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 the conservative intuition. Let's not open up yeah. for the stranger because he might be dangerous for us. And the left, yeah. the left wing kind of have to confront the fact that our, that there is a problematic 
that that our partner that we want to believe might not be the partner we believe and now the 7th of october now if there was any leftover of people who really believed that we have a partner for peace that destroyed it completely and i would say that now probably the percentage of people in israel that still hold the position that we have a partner for peace is very 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 small minority and again mm. i want to be clear for everybody who is listening i'm not saying that everybody in palestine wants me dead i'm just saying that we don't have partner on the level of leadership that is relevant for peace now if some people are not aware you know like hamas is um, is a much more radical organization than the than ashaf the plo uh, it stands on uh, much more strong islamic fundamentalistic values and in its core belief is the is that the that the land of israel is a holy muslim land and that it's against the the it's the it's the responsibility of every muslim to fight a jihadist holy war against the infidel against the non-muslim in the land and it see israelis not as settler colonial uh, colonialists like many people in the west tend to categorize israel nowadays but it sees israel as uh, uh as the infidels as as jewish people and they oppose the jewish presence in israel and they believe that murder of jews is a holy act in the jihadist war of liberation of the state of israel now if you don't believe me you're welcome to go and read their founding documents and and for those people who say like yeah okay this is their founding documents but you know it's not really what they believe there there are enough evidence now on the 7th of october to 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 connect between the founding document and what actually happens in reality and so so i personally i don't believe that there could be any possibility for um conversation with hamas mm. and 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 uh, having said that uh, and maybe again feel free to cut me to to interrupt me when you want to because you know i'm kind of going with my intuition i don't have a clear line but i just want to sure. say that you know nowadays there is this kind of meme Hamas is ISIS that is going on and I would say that even though that on the level of the brutality of their action they could be they could be compared to ISIS from a Muslim ideological point of view ISIS condemned Hamas as not radical enough because to some extent they have been willing to negotiate um de-escalation of violence with the Israeli government. So the fact that they even ne initiated some negotiation with a Jewish yeah. um, entity already is an evidence that they are not as radical and fundamentalist in their belief system. So there are levels mm -hmm. for like mm -hmm. jihadist fanatism, yeah. but as far as I'm concerned, that's way beyond the boundary that we've mentioned in the beginning of, of a liberal uh, conversation. And yeah. So it's I don't have a lot of, how... of, of hope 
when it comes to uh, what should be done with the leadership of Hamas. And I think it's also good to mention uh, when people talk about uh, oppressed people, that there is a very difference between the leadership of Hamas and, for example, the leadership of Ukraine. No, like let's kind of just make a, a very short comparison in the sense that you can look at this situation and say, hey, look, there is two uh, weaker uh, state in one case and in the other, not a state, but people who are being constantly attacked by a stronger entity. But when you look at the leadership, what is very different is that um, the leadership of Hamas is not on the ground. They are in Qatar, they are multi-billionaires, they, they live very great life in very fancy uh, mansions and hotels, and they are giving commands and order from their safe ground in comparison to the, to the prime minister of Ukraine, who has been, we had this kind of heroic quote of, don't send me a, don't send me a, a, a way out, send me ammunition, <laughs> you know? As somebody was like, hey, I'm staying here fighting for my people. I, so I don't, he said, I don't need a taxi, I need ammunition. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> I don't need, exactly. And, and the leadership of Hamas, they are not really concerned about the safety of their people, but they see their people as material that can justify their political religious aspirations. That's, that's, and that's a big mm -hmm. conflict that many Israelis experience right now. You know, like, because we are really being mm -hmm. criticized as, you know, like, I don't know if you've seen it, but you know, like, there is a very common, another common meme is like, stop the genocide, you know, that Israel is supposedly is doing for the Palestinian. And from the, from the most of the yeah. Israelis, and I'm not saying all the Israelis, I would say like, but the majority of, of Israel would not agree with that perspective. And they would put mm. more responsibility, more, like I would say that the majority of the people in Israel right now would say that the full responsibility is over Hamas. I would say that there is a shared responsibility about the situation and that definitely Hamas shares a big of the responsibility of the suffering of the Palestinians, even though that I would say that I'm pretty sure that most Gazan people will still hold more responsibility for Israel than Hamas for their own suffering. And mm -hmm. I can also, I can also still mend their position and, and think like them. Yeah. Even though I, okay. I, I'm not fully in agreement with that. Yeah. Um, maybe what I want to talk about is the, I think that radicalization is 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 basically something that can that can happen on on the on the backbone of any religious context basically so it probably doesn't matter whether you you are christian islamic or whether you're muslim or where you or a jew so i think radicalization is basically a, like a a human potential if you want that's always there um and and of course it needs certain ingredients like like well-known things like poverty and, and 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 lack of opportunities and stuff like that all of that and and narratives and blah 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 but the is practically irrelevant in, in, in the process, you know, at 
uh, leaning ideologies or within right uh, uh, um, leaning ideologies, there are spaces where you are falling into stronger and stronger ideological thinking. Nowadays, and that's kind of my estimation, where you can see a lot of sympathy between the radical Islamistic ideology is more with radicals on the left. It's actually not now, it's been historically like this. You know, you can look at uh, the Bader-Meinhof uh, uh, group in yeah, Germany and their collaboration, yeah. collaboration with the PLO. With the, with the PLO. Yeah. So like, yeah. let's say like this, like if, if right-wing uh, uh, right radicals uh, go about uh, ostracizing minorities, left-wing radicals somehow find common ground with a very radical, uh, yeah. uh, so to speak, liberation movement or, is, or, or nowadays even yeah. with jihadists. So, yeah. so that's... that's and, and maybe just a, sh a short uh, interception here. Um, I, I guess that fact has to do with, with um, this identification with um, the oppressed versus the oppressor. The right-wing people yeah. tend to identify with the strong part of the equation, you know, and left-leaning left people tend to identify with the weaker part. The weak, so that's yeah. Maybe, yeah, yeah, and yeah, and and I think that that's like, of course, like the, those values of this of the left radical uh, ideologies has nothing to do with the values of the jihadists. But the jihadists in this specific context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict could be recognized as the oppressed. Uh, yeah, and now for your question about the the integration, this hypothetical integration, um, and I think this is kind of certain maybe shadow of the Israeli side that I'm willing to to uh, kind of talk about and to dive into because I'm also responsible for that to some extent. Um, so I think it uh, maybe it's good to to jump in a little bit to 48 and to look at the Nakba sl slash the independence war to understand the context of the, this question. So when the Zionist movement started to operate and had this vision of building a, a Jewish state and the destination has been decided to be um, this specific part of the world the that, was, that was back yeah. then named by the Britain Palestine. There was a certain urgency to help many Jews to immigrate to, to the Holy Land. And that plan was interrupted by the Second World War, which literally destroyed the Jewish population in Europe. And there was a, a serious um, debate back then within the Jewish within the Jewish leadership, like what should we do? We we don't have enough Jews to bring because they are all being murdered. And the decision was. Uh, are you still with me? I'm sorry. I just uh, yeah yeah yeah. Oh, I, uh, I'm listening. Yeah, no, it, the the picture was frozen. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, uh, and the decision back then was that they should try to convince Jews from what we call the uh, uh, eastern part of the world, Mizrahi, Jews from Arabic states, to come to Israel. Now you have to remember that in this context, you're talking about a huge difference between. Uh, the standard of living of Europeans and people that w that most of the Jews leadership were European descendant Jews, not all, but most. Some were uh, also like um, Jews from um, families from many generations that goes back many, many generations uh, in Israel. 
and they decided to uh, adopt a new plan and to accept many Jews and to encourage many Jews to come to immigrate to, to Israel. And in, in the, and, and the, the, the push was to generate majority of Jewish people in the land with the, the hypothesis, yeah. That, yeah, with the hypothesis that if there will not be Jewish majority, we cannot have a democratic country. Mm. Why? Because Jewish people cannot accept being the minority because that's what they have been trying to avoid, you know, because all the history of the pogroms mm. and the Jewish persecution. So it was clear, like, if something has to be different when we build our own state, is that we have to be the majority in order to make it democratic at the same time. And, and to feel safe, yeah. Yeah, so this is kind of the hypothesis. And what happened in 48 is that after the, establi the establishment, after the announcement of the creation of the Israeli state, there was a joint effort from five Arabic countries, including the Arab population, which these are the people that we will call nowadays Palestinians. Back then they were not identified as Palestinians, they were part of this kind of bigger Arabic identity. And it's good to, to, to understand that all this state, na nation state, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, this is kind of Western invention. There was no national identity that was broken into those territories. This was just like British and French Marshall drawing lines yeah. and dividing the land. So there was like an Arabic identity. There was an attempt to create an Arabic state that uh, that back then this, the area of Israel was called the, the Southern Syria. This goes back to the Ottoman time. So basically, yeah, the, the, there was yeah. a, a the 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 leadership of the Palestinian people back then decided to in, to attack the Jewish state. They were joined by the forces of of all these Arabic states in an attempt to destroy the state completely and to gain control over the land, not to negotiate for some, you know, for the for the UN borders or something. It, the, 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 the initiate of the war was the destruction of the Jewish state. The aggressive war failed. During the war, there was a request coming from the, the, the armies of the Arabic state to, towards the Arabic population that were living back then in Haifa, in Jaffa, and many other places to evacuate during the wartime with the idea that after a few days when we ran through this Jewish state and destroyed it, you can go back to your home. So to minimize the casualties. Casualties. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, so this, these events led to the, um, the withdrawal of around 700,000 people from their homes. Who became the Palestinian refugees? Now, beside that, there was also several cases that were kind of very uh, hardly hidden within the Jewish leadership of active deportation and of Arabic villages and territories in Israel. So it was partially the request of the Arabic um, uh, armies mm -hmm. and partially the, the direct responsibility of the Israeli leadership to, to make the, the, the Palestinian flee from their home. This is the Nakba. This is what Western people now, those who people who kind of hold this 
decolonization perspective. This is what they call the ethnic cleansing by the state of Israel. Now it's good to to understand that in the context of the of the in the context that it happened, it was in the midst of a war. So the Jewish state is being established. Few days after the announcement of of the of the country, there is an aggressive war, and part of the result of the war is that. 700,000 people find themselves without homes and they are spread in different countries. So some of them stayed and these are the people who now uh, we call Israeli Arabs. Some of them stayed in areas that were uh, controlled by Egypt. This is the whole Gaza Strip. It was controlled by Egypt. Some of them are in the West Bank. This was controlled by uh, Jordan, and some of them went to Lebanon and Syria. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, something that happened simultaneously due to the 48 war is the deportation of 900,000 Jews from Arabic states. So all the Jews mm -hmm. from Morocco, from uh, Libya, from um, Algeria, from Egypt, from Iraq, from Yemen, from many, many areas in around the Middle East and North Africa were deported and arrived to Israel. Now, I'm not saying that we, we, we should just treat it as like, okay, we threw 700 of yours, we got 900 of ours, and that's it, it should be equal. It's just <laughs> to put a context. Mm -hmm. So when people use the term mm -hmm. ethnical cleansing, it's good to to look at the facts also, because now in the territory of Israel and Palestine, there are quarter of the population in, of Israel are Arabs, which are uh, what we call, again, Israeli Arabs, or some of them more identify as Palestinians. It's like a very, very mixed uh, identity, plus uh, another four million Palestinians. So within the boundaries of what we call Israel-Palestine, there, there is around 5 million Palestine, Arabic people, which doesn't really mm -hmm. equal to ethnic cleansing. But on the other hand, if you look at the numbers of Jews living in Arabic countries, it's under, like it's, the numbers are very, 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 very low, mm -hmm. if at all. So mm -hmm. if we talk about mm -hmm. ethnic cleansing, so there was a, so I would say that the Arabic world is much more responsible for ethnic cleansing of Jews then that the Jewish state is responsible mm. for ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. Now, another thing that is quite crazy to grapple with, and I, I cannot understand why is it like that, is that anywhere in the world, there is a, the, the UN has a department that is responsible for refugees. And all the refugees in the world have a certain legal status. And the legal status is as following. If I'm a refugee, Let's say I ran now from Syria due to war and I got accepted to live in Austria. When my kids are born and they get uh, Austrian uh, uh, citizenship, I'm not considered a refugee yes. anymore. Mm -hmm. my, my kids, I cannot, I don't inherit them the status of a refugee. That's it. They are not refugees anymore. They are not Syrian anymore. They got accepted. They, are, they have relocated into a new place. The, now, the UN also has another department for Palestinian refugees, specifically for refugees that are the result of a conflict with the Jewish, with the one <laughs> Jewish state in the world. Now, those refugees can 
inherit the status of a refugee from their parents. Therefore, 700,000 refugees are now several million refugees. So when people say like there is few million Palestinian refugees, it's, it's, mm -hmm. you need to understand that many of these refugees are people that are already for three generations, they are living in Syria and they don't see themselves as Syrian. Mm -hmm. They see themselves as Palestinian refugees. And now you can say like, look, Matan, who are you to judge people who wants to come back to their ancestral homeland? Or this is your Jewish history. You, you've been uh, um, dispersed for thousands of years and still you maintain your connection to your indigenous land and you came back and that's fair enough. I'm not judging the people. Who I judge is the Arabic states who have been leveraging mm. from that story and didn't integrate. Yeah, in order to pressure uh, the Palestinians. Yeah. They didn't integrate the Palestinians. I would even, mm. you know, uh, open up your perspective that, for example, when Palestinian, which are now, if I'm not mistaken, there is like a majority of Palestinian in Jordan, like people who are like a, kind of uh, in, the, in the population. When there was a... a uh, demonstration and, and from Palestinians in Jordan, the Jordanian king ordered <coughs> his police office, his police forces to open fire and to just shoot people who demonstrate against his regime. So, mm. you know, like, so, so the level of uh, critique that Israel is receiving from the Western world is much, 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 much higher than the critique that we are placing on the Arabic world. Now you can maybe say like, hey, okay, because Israel is supposed to be a democratic country, so we hold them into a different uh, standards of standards. behavior. <laughs> hmm? yeah. But it's still curious for me. Yeah, and, and for me, and again, like that's maybe that sounds strange for people, but for me, when I think about this, like why in all over the world, there is one status for refugees in all conflict, but there is a specific organization within the UN called the UNRWA that is dedicated for support for the Palestinian refugees. For me, and that's only in the context of a conflict with the only Jewish state in the world. For me, there is a certain cynicist side that really look at the world and say like, look, there is such a rooted anti-Semitism that, that is also embedded within people who are, so to speak, humanitarian. <coughs> because for example, if you think about and that's a good example. If you think about the, I don't know, the German population who have been living in the territories that were part of the Czech, that is now Czech Republic before Second World War, that there was there was a big German part there, if I'm not mistaken. And after the Second World War, Germany had to like you know the borders of Czech Republic expanded, and many Germans lost their homes, and they eventually integrated some of them in Austria, some of them in, in Germany, you know, some of them maybe in Switzerland. So like kind of they went into areas that would be more related to them culturally. And it would be unthinkable now to imagine that a bunch of, uh, I don't know, 100,000 of those German people, uh, let's say Czech descended German speaker will now start to demonstrate and say, uh, you know, like free the, what is <laughs> the, this back. region? You're like we want to take, yeah. we want to go to our indigenous homes. It would be unthinkable, but yeah. that's the standards uh, that uh, we... Uh, I would have Poland in case. <laughs> Say again. Yeah. You would. I, I, I would have to go to Poland. I, I would to have Poland. to go to Poland in that case. Yeah. So yeah, so yeah. For, so and for me it's my, it's my land back. So for <laughs> me it's it's a it's a little bit unthinkable and 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 again like, you know, if the case would have been that Israel would have started an aggressive war and would actively throw 
hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, I would say, look, now we are talking about historically on a different situation. And this is where the Israeli narrative and the Palestinian narrative goes completely different. Because when you talk with, uh, with an average Palestinians, and I have spoken, for them, the Nakba is ethnic cleansing. For them, like, we have been thrown from our homes we, we, after mm -hmm. the war. And that's, and that's something that we have to say, that what Israeli, the Israeli army did is that when people tried to come back after the war finished, you mm -hmm. know, the, the Israeli army shot close to them to, to make sure that if you're coming back, you're going to, we're going to open fire. So that's true. Mm. We actively prevented them from coming back. And there were, <coughs> like you already mentioned, some, some acts of, of hostility <coughs> were there for sure from the, from the Israeli of course, army. We, we, yeah. we are not, uh, we are not, uh, the Jewish people are not angels. Uh, and in uh, times of war, nobody is an angel. Uh, and you know, yeah. there's many, many atrocities that we have done over mm -hmm. the years. And I don't want to portray a picture of uh, some kind of uh, yeah. angelic people who are just promoting peace. No, we did a lot of uh, very aggressive and violent things. In my perspective, I, I cannot say that, I cannot say that uh, this was a morally justified action to do from a humanitarian perspective to, to prevent those Palestinians to come back to what was their home. But I cannot judge history on the values that are present now. In 48, the whole idea of universal human rights and, and, and moving away from your ethnocentric identity into a more humanitarian identity, that was not the popular uh, perspective that people around the world were embedded. This was the era of mm -hmm. national, nationalism. People were embedded completely in their ethnical identity in mm -hmm. Europe. You know, it was the end of Second World War. It was not, you know, nobody would have treated Germans as, ah, oh, they're fellow humans. We, we were all embedded in ethnocentric mm. uh, perspective. So now in 2023, looking at it and saying, like, hey, why this uh, Jewish leadership couldn't mm. see the Palestinian as just fellow human beings? Well, it wasn't the values of those days. It was like, it's just, mm. unf and, and it, there is something very pretentious in like thinking about the values you're embedded right now in the culture and projecting them into the past, the past, you know, and just saying mm -hmm. like, hey, if I was there, I would be fight for human rights. No, you wouldn't. You would, you would experience yourself as a, in that case, as a Jew or as a Palestinian, and you would see the other side as not you and as others. And that's, mm -hmm. and maybe, mm -hmm. maybe there was some minority of progressive thinkers who already have seen the next step, step of, mm -hmm. of potential cultural evolution, but that wasn't the, the majority. And mm -hmm. <coughs> so, yeah, that's um, a long answer. And I think that nowadays, yeah. again, like, and you know, like maybe just to expand a little bit on the tension, because many people say like that the tension is between, uh, you know, Israel is considered a Jewish, uh, a Jewish democratic state. And many people say like, hey, that's a contradiction in and of itself, Jewish and democratic. But I ah, would say that, yeah, that's actually my next question. Yeah. Do you consider Israel a religious state? If you enjoyed the conversation so far and found it meaningful, please consider to share the episode with others and to click the like button. These small actions might seem meaningless, but they are the fuel that helps the podcast project to move forward. Your attention and time is highly valued, and we would love to hear more about the insights you might have from listening to this episode. And please consider to subscribe to the channel to be notified for all future uploads. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so I, I, I'll, I'll expand on that. So first, so first, J Judaism. You can argue very strongly 
that it's both an ethnic identity and a religion and a religion. Now, those who are ideologues and they want to promote, let's say, a pro-Palestinian perspective, they would say, hey, Judaism is not an ethnical identity. It's just, just a religion. So why would, why would you want to have a state for a religion? You know, like they can, these Jews can, you know, go back to, you know, if they're German Jews, they should be in Germany if they are. Like, you know, why would they have even the right for a state? But you can also have very strong argument for why uh, Judaism is also uh, an ethnical identity. And that's maybe something that is quite unique about the Jewish identity, because in most countries, I mean, I actually don't know even one other religion that is also ethnical identity. But, you know, if you think about Islam, you can be an Arabic Islamic person, you can be a, an Islamic yeah. person who is like a Russian. Many variants. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, same with Christianity, same with Buddhism. But in Judaism, it's different. And that's a blessing and a curse at the same time, because to some extent, you know, if I don't believe in the, in practicing the, 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 the Jewish religion, religion, I can, you know, from a Jewish perspective, I, you know, I can say, Hey, I'm not a Jew. I'm just an Israeli. But from the Jewish perspective, they say, like, sorry, you, you're a you're Jew, whether a Jew. you like it or not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but the, the biggest tension, I think within the, the, the state of Israel is a tension that we also experience now in many, many European countries is a tension between liberalism and, and democracy. Conservative. So, hmm? mm. No, no, go on. Yeah. So, so, so I, I will repeat the tension between liberalism and democracy. So we have this, this, uh, unified, uh, ideas that we call like a liberal democracy, but there's a certain inherited tension and the thoughts that I'm going to share are coming from uh, an Israeli um, thinker that I'm following that now, of course, I forgot his name, <laughs> but uh, um, I will try to um, remember while we speak. Um, there is a podcast that I'm following that it's in Hebrew. Otherwise, I would reference it here. Um, anyhow, um, so democracy in, 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 in basically is the, is, the, is the governing of the demos, of the people. No? So, so, so pure democracy, let's say, is where the majority rules. But we know that this, is, this has potential catastrophic uh, outcomes. And liberalism is, the pro is in principle, like I'm, I'm minim I really minimize it, is the protection of the the legal protection of the weak, no, like human rights. So there's a tension there because like, if you really want to protect the, 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 the minorities, you have to some extent limit the power of the, of the demos. You have to limit the power of the governing body. Yeah. So, yeah. so you, you compromise a little bit of democracy in order to arrive to liberal democracy. And that's the inherited tension within the Israeli state. So we, say like look in order for the protection of the jews we know that they cannot be the minority because and that's a conservative perspective that says look we know what has happened in the past let's not open for the possibility of something new because mm -hmm. again the, pers the progressive perspective will say like hey maybe if we try it differently there could be a possibility that we are minority but nobody hurts us and the conservatives position will say like, no, we've done it enough. We're not going to try that. So we have to compromise certain democratic 
principles. So, mm. so we will not allow everyone to participate. So we are compromising democratic principle because democracy will be that everybody who everybody who is part of the state is welcome to participate in the democratic in the in the in the democratic process. So we will limit that in order to prevent potential catastrophe for those who are now the majority. So it's like it's an ex it, it's a liberal intuition that is extended to the future. You understand what you're, you're following yeah. me? Because of course, like yeah. now when, when Jews are a majority, you can say like, hey, look, there's no, you're, you're, you should not be protected. You're the majority. You should protect the minority. But the Jewish intuition is expanded into the future saying like, hey, mm. we know what has happened in the past. So we don't want to get there. So then like, if you say like, if we, if I go back to the original question, why don't you just kind of say, okay, like, let's just get, you know, like we don't care about the, the Palestinian leadership. Let's just reoccupy the whole space we enable people to participate in the economy but we limit their their participation in the democracy i would say that many arab israelis probably feel like that already okay we we, we have the freedom to be part of uh, the israeli economy we are studying in the universities it, hmm? but it's it not possible to 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 leave Gaza. Sorry, the, the, uh, and and get into Israeli. Uh, the internet is bad. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Do you hear me now? Could you repeat the question? Yeah. How is it actually at the moment, uh, or before, uh, let's say before October seven? How how was the situation for an for a Palestinian living in Gaza? Could he go to Israel and and do business there? Yeah. So so first of all. Yeah, so there is a there is a very big legal difference between somebody who is has an Arab ethnicity but Israeli citizenship, and somebody who has an Arab or Palestinian ethnicity, and it doesn't and have refugee. No, and, that, and doesn't have uh, yeah. uh, Israeli citizenship, yeah. and that and they could yeah. be ref, uh, uh, people who were refugees from Jaffa and Haifa and Haifa and other city, but it can also be people who have been for generation living in Gaza. Um, so as far as I'm aware, the and in here I really uh, uh, I will probably not be correct with the facts. So just for everybody to know, uh, before seven of October there was some limited possibilities, and again that's what I'm aware, but maybe I'm I'm, I'm wrong, for people in Gaza to get permission to work in Israel. Okay. Where in the West Bank, it was much more common for Palestinians to get work permission to work within Israel. Now, if you ask yourself, why would they even want to work in Israel? is because of the economical differences between Israel and Palestine. Israel has a much stronger okay. economy. So if you work in Israel and you earn shekel, Israeli shekel, which is the currency in Israel, it's worth much more in Gaza. So it's a little but bit could like you also could you also settle there then by land by flat no, 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 no. So so basically, it's a little bit like somebody from uh, I don't know, Eastern Europe that comes to work in Vienna, let's say like many people who are like working in construction, they just come to work here, but they don't live here in Austria. So of course it's not exactly the same, but like from an econo purely economical point of view, that's pretty similar. So I, I, I live in Gaza, mm -hmm. 
I got myself permission, I go to work and I come back. Now the differences is in what I will say the level of experience and like the legal possibility. So when you come from Poland to work in Austria, you don't go through check posts, nobody check who you are. And also legally, if you want, you have the possibility to live in Vienna. No? So if you don't mm -hmm. want to leverage on the economical differences, you can just choose, hey, I'm just going to move and make my life in Vienna and that's fine. You're welcome to do that. So, but then if, if they're able to live in Israel to buy a flat or, and live there, then what did you mean by saying that they are actually already a part of Israel? Yes. Okay. So no. So, so yeah. Okay. So maybe the point where I was got confused. You. Yeah. Sure. So again, I'm I'm differentiating again between Israeli Arabs who are legally has the exact same right that I have. They can vote. They can uh, buy land. They can uh, they can and they are very integrated in our political system. The last coalition before Benjamin Netanyahu, we had a joint coalition that there were Arabs in the government. Uh, there was a joint Arab party that uh, formed the coalition with actually quite uh, right-wing nationalists. <laughs> so strange uh, mm -hmm. uh, political uh, moment in Israel. And they are very integrated in the legal system. There are many judges that are uh, Arabs. They are very integrated in the medical field. There are many, many Arab doctors and nurses and pharmacists. So, so they're, they're quite integrated. Now, of course, there is a lot of discrimination and um, you know, then that's kind of, uh, Israel is not different than uh, anywhere else. There's also a lot of discrimination in, in Austria or in the United States or in many other Western countries that are legally, uh, not discriminating. There is still discrimination on the ground. So there's a gap between the legal status and the culture. So in Israel, uh, those uh, Israeli Arabs have the same legal status like me. And actually, funny anecdote, uh, the Eud Olmert, which was a Jewish uh, prime minister, uh, part of the Likud, he was sent to jail because of corruption. And one of the judges who were sending him to jail was an Arabic person. So, you know, so the, the, the accusation of Israel, that Israel is an apartheid state, are very ideologically driven. You can say that the way Israel governs the Palestinians has, uh, um, is, could be described more as an apartheid regime or apartheid policies. Because again, legally in Israel, you cannot find anything in the books that will discriminate Arabs. And again, of course, the gap between the legal status and the culture is present in many countries. And I would say that that's something that we, Israel, we should work to, to, to better ourselves, that, that we, really see Arabs as fellow citizens, citizens. Now the problem is, and that within the Arab population in Israel, there are many who identify first and foremost as Palestinians. So they are born in Jaffa, they have an Israeli passport, but they see themselves from an identity point of view, I'm Palestinian. And I happen to be conquered by the, uh, by the Jewish people. And now I find myself living in this in this country. But mm. again, from an economical point of view and from a humanitarian point of view, you will find it hard to argue 
that it's better for Israeli Arabs to move to the West Bank or to Gaza. Economically, there's no doubt. And I would say that also from a humanitarian point of view, there's no doubt. But still on the level of identity, you know, like if you feel I'm Palestinian, you're in an internal conflict. And that's very unfortunate. Mm. Now, there is another area that is called East Jerusalem that has its own particular legal status, which is quite problematic. Circumstances. That some people mm -hmm. of in East Jerusalem, yeah. they don't have an Israeli passport. They just have a certain ID card that is kind of... Uh, and this is like a really weird legal status. I'm not really aware exactly mm -hmm. of the details, but you know, these are, there, are, there are some problems there that needs to be rectified. And what is really interesting to see nowadays is that there is a, there is a, a growing number of voices within the Arab-Israeli population who are trying to dismantle the Palestinian identity. And they say, hey, I'm Arab and I'm an Israeli. I believe in, in, uh, in, in Western values. I believe in democracy. I believe in capitalism. I believe in uh, freedom. And I just want to be integrated in Israel. I'm going to serve the army. I'm going to, you know, like really trying to strip themselves completely from this Palestinian identity. And they want to say, hey, you know, Israel is a democratic country and mm -hmm. I'm just part of this uh, country. And I, I happen to be from another, from a minority group, but I'm being protected legally and that's it. Now, these are, I would say, still the minority of Arabs in Israel, but it's interesting that these voices are becoming stronger. And there is one mm -hmm. specific guy called Yusuf Khaled, if I think I pronounce his name correctly, that he has been extremely vocal on social media, mm -hmm. going completely against Hamas and the Palestinians. And like, you know, like he, he from the Israeli perspective, he's the, the nice Arabs that we want on our side who says like, hey, <laughs> you are the Jews are are correct, you know, like in this kind of binary battle, who is the good and who is the evil? He's yeah. the the ultimate uh, player. I would say on the other side is like there is a, an American organization called Jewish Voices for Peace that they are like you know like they are anti-Zionist and they are like completely like uh, pro-Palestinian. So so you know like uh, it's just interesting to see mm -hmm. how rich the landscape of ideas and identities and how complex it is and that it's yeah. really really far from like having a, like a unified voice absolutely and yeah. and and yeah so so for me i would say like in principle like again like the israel is first and foremost the state for the jewish people and then it's a democratic it's a democratic state mm. for all the people who are living there and there are other minority groups not only arabs there are druze there are bedouins there are like there are different mm -hmm. um, uh, minority groups ethnical minority groups and, mm -hmm. and I think that, you know, like if you would have asked me this question before the 7th of October, I might have answered you that mm -hmm. Israel is first and foremost should be a democratic state and second, it should be the state of the Jews. <laughs> but the yeah. event of the yeah. 7th of October have awakened inside of me a very strong ethnical uh, um, part that was buried under Feeling, yeah. a higher humanitarian perspective that I'm just a human in the world. But confronting the level of yeah, uh, yeah. of of direct anti-Semitism and 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 subtle, more slippery anti-Semitism that I feel around me makes me feel like, hmm, actually, mm. it's very good that we have a, a Jewish state first and foremost, and then we can welcome mm. those who believe in the values that we believe to be our neighbors and partners and to integrate, even though that legally 
And that's again, that's another thing that I just want to share with you. I don't know if you're aware of it. Many people look at it as some kind of a, a ethnic discrimination <clears throat> that if you're a Jew that was born in the US, you can come to Israel, you get a passport, you get uh, some financial support and you can, you can immigrate to Israel. But if your grandfather was Palestinian, you cannot do that. And that's true. And, and then some people look at it and say like, hey, it's like a ethnical discrimination. And I would say that, you know, like any country that I know in the world has some form of ethnical discrimination of, of who they are willing to welcome to become their citizen. Some countries don't do it based on ethnicity, but some countries do. Austria, for example, I cannot become an Austrian. I don't have a right to be an Austrian unless my parents are Austrian. So if my parents would have been born in Austria, mm. but they would have immigrated to the US and I would be born as a US citizen, I would still be able to claim Austrian passport because of my parents are Austrian. So it's still based on this aristocratic principle. France is different. In France, you need to be born in, in the country and I can, I can go there, uh, give, my wife can give birth to our kids in Paris and that's it, they will get uh, French citizenship. So I, I wouldn't say that Israel is doing something differently. It's just that this, the discrimination is based on uh, uh, the Jewish ethnicity that again is some identity. Yeah. yeah and, and that's something that again, yeah. like, you know, the people who are really opposing vocally Israel, they use this also as a card to kind of portray Israel as some kind of a atrocious country that discriminate on based on ethnicity, but most countries in the world are doing it. And I don't see people like vocally this uh, shouting on, on the Austrian discrimination <laughs> of all the non Austrian who might want to potentially live in Austria. Yep. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that answer. It, it really opened uh, some new perspective, perspective for me. What you said about democracy and liberal democracy, and 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 to how how it plays out in Israel. Um, you have, um, just repeatedly with uh, talking about anti-Semitism and, and that's maybe a point where, where we disagree or where I at least have some I have some problems with, with that notion that everybody is uh, opposing um, or criticizing Israel as a state or the, the state actors um, is automatically anti-Semite. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that that's what a little I heard from 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 you mentioning mentioning that twice. Um. So, actually, during the last days since since October seventh, I I heard that a lot on the mainstream media and stuff. That like it, it immediately gets into population battle, like you also said, um, and where, where everybody who has some critique about. Uh, Either actual, either Israeli action or past Israeli actions or whatever, but uh, is automatically called anti and 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 you you know have repeated that from your own perspective. You said that you feel like there's a rise of anti-Semitism. There there is a lot of anti-Semitism um, that you observe. So so what? How do you respond to that? If I if I tell you that. Um, actually, for me, this is quite dissatisfying because I um, want to be able to criticize an, an, a state like Israel the same way 
than any other state like US or yeah. my own state or, you know, and without uh, being, being, being judged being a tema because it's a completely different thing it's no, not course, mine at all you know i'm, I'm identified with with any uh, ethnicity and they would they like to discriminate you or something like that yes you know? of course I'll, tr that? i'll try to map a little bit the boundaries as, as far as i can see i just want to jump back quickly for and reference maybe just just yeah, a sorry. technical thing yeah. matt done Yeah. yeah. Um, are you able to turn down the volume of your mic? Because it's a little bit overdriven. It, it's a little, it sounds a little bit like a distorted guitar amp or something. You know yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, like, I'm sorry. Like I'm also monitoring. Um, maybe you can lower a bit the volume because I'm also monitoring the sound of the microphone while we speak. And I know that if you have no, a... I, I, no, it's not, it's not too loud in the ears. It's it, the signal. Uh, sound microphone would be too much for the for the input but never mind yeah yeah i'm aware of it but in the I, i'm in the recording from my side on the file it will it will sound loud enough so that's why i, I keep it like this but i know there is a certain uh, uh, problem here um okay okay so so yeah sorry so just for the reference the person i was mentioning before is called dr micha goodman and uh is a part of a podcast called the uh, the party of thoughts and uh, this is the name of the podcast for hebrew speaker who are listening it's called me flag at and i can really recommend listening to this podcast great thinker uh, okay so let me try to respond to the question about the difference between um valid critique and anti-semitism first of all on a principle level of course it's very stupid to say that every critique on israel is anti-semitic that would be uh like you know uh logical fallacy it will it will be to say that it, it will be similar to say that every critique on a person who, who happened to be uh, uh, uh black is immediately racism you know like that if you think like that me me like you know and i'm and i'm pointing out to people who are listening if you think that every critique that that we are not allowed to criticize each other because that would be racism or sexism or whatever then you're already embedded in this kind of uh, identity politics which I'm a big I have a big resistance and of opposition to I think that you know like on the level of ideas we should have the ability to converse in regardless to our uh, I, our own identity we are allowed to converse and to think and to criticize people from different uh, identity groups and people from different ethnicities ethnicities and citizenship now now I think that the critique And the anti-Semitic sentiments that I feel comes from what I will call the, what we could categorize as the decolonialization discourse. And not everybody who criticizes Israel believes in that kind of perspective or stand behind this kind of perspective. So let's do it shortly. What is this decolonialization perspective? So... This is a stream of thoughts that you can kind of generally categorize that emerge from postmodernism. It's also emerged primarily in the US and it comes to criticize the colonial sins of the West. And uh, oh, just, just a moment, the door here got open, just a moment.
Hey, I'm back. Sorry. Can you can you hear me? Yeah, no problem. Oh. I just a glass of water. Now I have a bit of a problem with my own. Can you speak for a moment? Yeah, I'm okay. okay. Yeah, perfect. Mm, yeah, yeah, perfect. Sorry. Yeah. So the so and again, I'm I'm saying it in a very very simplified manner, you know, but that could be a good entry. So decolonization, you know, a, a stream of thoughts that is looking for power imbalances and looking for to to expose colonial thinking and et cetera, et cetera. And one term that is embedded in this stream of thought is the term settler colonialism, that is to describe the act of an imperial force to <clears throat> send settlers into a new territory to colonize the territory to ethnically change the the the, the balances and to exploit yeah. the indigenous people and to to benefit the yeah. the, the imperial power no take ownership of the land, of the land yeah, yes yeah. Mm. now you can you can um, apply this discourse on the establishment of Israel, but you will have to do certain uh, um, intellectual fallacies in order to really look at wow. the situation like this. Now, if I'm trying to still man this position and kind of say, so you can look at the, the Zionist as a European colonial movement that has arrived to the state of Palestine, and through means of power and colonial and, and imperial support of the British people, they've managed to overthrow the local population. And since 48, they have uh, built up a colonial, a settler colonial state called Israel, and they are occupying and um, the indigenous Palestinians. So that would be kind of, in short, the decolonization narrative. Which for me is anti-Semitic, <laughs> and that would be for me the boundary between a legitimate criticism on Israel and an illegitimate criticism on Israel. And why is it legitimate and illegitimate? And maybe I should also uh, unpack why do I think it's anti-Semitic? I don't know. Uh, I, I guess that would be a necessary step. But. Um, in, in principle, as long as you see, as long as you agree that the Jewish people deserve the right for self-determination in their historically indigenous land, then we are in a place that you have the freedom to criticize Israel, because in your base belief, you still think that Israel should exist. And then we can talk about the two-state solutions, and we can talk about many things. But if you come from the decolonialization discourse, in principle, you think that the establishment of Israel is criminal, is a criminal act. And you don't believe that the state of Israel should exist. And, and the problem with that way of thinking, and that's why I think it's anti-Semitic in its core, is first, it's really inaccurate historically. And Second, it gives permission 
for violence that is directed towards Jews, not towards Israelis at the end of the day. Hence, you could have seen, you know, like students, American students shouting, we want Jewish genocide, <laughs> you know, <laughs> quite curious days. So, so this is the boundaries. And now, and now like, why would I say that it's inaccurate uh, 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 historically? Because, you know, like the, the Zionist movement was not a movement that was supported by imperial forces. On the opposite, it was the Jewish population in Israel. At a certain moment, they initiate a very bloody uh, f resistance against the imperial power of Britain. British power. British yeah. power, yeah. Now, there, there were moments because, again, Brit the British, you know, people, people, when people say, like, who did the British favor, the Jews or the Arabs? No, they favor the British. <laughs> you know, they, they did what was good for Britain, first and foremost. And in those days, Britain was, uh, towards the establishment of Israel, Britain was fighting the, the you know, in the Second World War. The, was it called the Yeshuf in the early days or the Haganah already? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't, yeah. No, the, yeah. the, the, the word Yeshuv means the, 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 the settlement. The settlement. The settlement. Okay, and Haganah yeah. is, 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 the, is the defense. The, the defense is, was part of the, you know, like a kind of paramilitary group. There was a few of them, Haganah, Etzel, and Alechi. There was like three big paramilitary groups that were compromised yeah, of yeah, different yeah. political affiliation. Yeah. Haganah was related more to the, let's say, kind of the socialist they, they Jews. They killed quite a couple of, of British, uh, British um, Yeah, yeah, they, they, they were, there. they were, yeah. they had a no very... No British uh, occupants. Yeah. They, they had a very, very uh, aggressive uh, militant strategies against the British forces that were like bombing uh, uh, their... Mm. Uh, but, but again, like, mm. if, to be, if to be fair, they never targeted the directly civilians, but they were attacking like military and police bases of the British people yeah. in order to fight them. So... Uh, it, it's the beginning of the book I, I I read in the last during the last days. It, it's called uh, how's it called um, Rise and Kill First by Ronan Bergman, mm. and it's 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 about it starts basically in 1907 with the formation of this Lehi underground yeah. Yeah. movement and all the actions it it took. Yeah, and there was a there was a really strong ideological uh, uh, opposition between uh, the Lehi and the Haganah. There was even a case that. Uh, Agana uh, forces bombarded a ship that was mm -hmm. brought from Europe with the Lehi yeah. leadership. Lehi leadership, yeah. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. and th that was kind of the, the like really big ideological differences yeah. between Menachem Begin, who was later became the, the, the so first was, prime minister the, of the, the Likud. The baseline, baseline we could say is that uh, the, the formation of the Israeli state was not, not by not exactly by by the like because it was favored by britain but just because they they were bold and and uh, and and carved yeah. it out for themselves basically. so 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 during yeah. these years from the from the occupation of britain on the ter on the on the area and up to the establishment of israel there were different agreements and different uh, uh, the, the british negotiated different agreements with different people in the land in order to favor their own interests and one of the agreement they did was with the well i forget now the name of the family there was a big arabic family that they promised them to create a, a, an arabic uh, land that will continue from egypt all the way into iraq 
and it will be a big Arabic state. That was one uh, agreement that the British did. Another agreement they did was the Balfour Declaration that they promised the Jewish uh, people that they will give them the possibility to, to create a Jewish uh, independent Jewish state in the land of Israel. They also made agreement with France and eventually they divided the... Eventually, they, <laughs> what the British did was to uh, um, allow the French to take the territories of Lebanon and Syria nowadays and they took another. So eventually the British didn't favor not the Jewish nor the Arabs, they favored the French. And they did a big, you know, there, there's a lot of the mess in the Middle East could be um, pointed back to how the British govern the land while they had the what's called the, the British mandates mandate yeah. and, and and again like you can you can argue that look the way the Palestinian leadership in the area of Israel the way they negotiated with the, the British in comparison to the way the Jewish leadership was negotiated with the leadership and a big part of it was a guy called Chaim Weizmann who was a Jews Jew that had a, a British Jew that was really influencing and pushing mm. uh, for that, 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 that the Jewish people ma managed to negotiate better and they were more willing to compromise stuff. They said like, and in their strategy, it was like, uh, we will take as much as we will get and we will first establish the state and then we will try to see what happened. Well, the Arabs were like, we will, we will really not compromise our vision and we will push for the vision. And at the end, what happened is that the Israelis in the UN declaration, they got a certain amount of the land and Arabs got certain amount of the land. The Jews accepted it, the Arabs uh, leadership didn't accept it. And then we ended up in the 48 war. Mm -hmm. So, so again, like if I go back to the, the initial question, I would say like that, uh, that, uh, so this is one first critique about the decolonization narrative that Israel is kind of, that the Jews, the Zionist movement is kind of a, uh, imperial force, which is oh, obviously uh, not. Yeah. And if you, if you do hold it, that like, again, it's like you, you're pushing your ideology on the reality. The second thing is that if we talk about who is indigenous to the land, the, um, every archaeological digging in this specific land brings back artifacts that could be dated into the David Kingdom, which was the original Jewish kingdom in the land of Israel. Now, the Arabs did conquer the land at a certain point during the, the Arab, uh, and again, like it's somewhere in the, I mean, Muhammad was uh, uh, established Islam, I think something around, I think 700, but Se maybe I'm wrong. 700. Mm -hmm. Maybe 400, 700, but, you know, King David, the, 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 the Jewish um, independent kingdom of King David dates before the, the born of Christ. So, so, so then at a certain point, there is an Arab empire that conquered this whole land and, there, and, the, and the land was shifting between different empires and and at a certain point, the, the last empire that held the land was the British. So if you're really being honest for the idea of indigenous people returning to their indigenous land against colonial um, uh, imperialism, then you should support the Israelis. Now, where the problem comes is that, okay, look, the, it's always like, what is the, t the time frame that you're looking? If you look at like... Uh, um, if you look like five generations backwards, so there was a majority of Arabs and minority of Jews. But if you go more in time, you, you, you can say, look, but we were here before. And this is kind of endless conversation. At the end, I see that like both the Palestinians and the Israelis are indigenous to the land. 
you can, and, and mm-hmm. it doesn't matter for me, you know, many Israelis will bring the argument, hey, the Palestinian identity was only born in uh, 64 by Yasser Arafat. Before that, they were just part of the Arab people and they, they have other Arab countries. Why should they be here? I don't I don't go with it. At the end of the day, I'm very pragmatic. There are like 4 million Palestinians now in the land. We, the, any solution that will deny them the possibility to write there will be, um, will have to go way beyond the liberal principles that I believe. So we have to find some kind of a compromise and live together. That's my perspective. At the same time, I do believe that like create, forming one big state that will be like, you know, just let's call it the the state of this region would not work because there's like such different uh, cultural values and so much ethnical tension that I don't think that it's going to work. Even though on a, on a, on a, on an utopian vision, you know, there are many, uh, you know, I lived in an Arab village for a few years before I moved to Austria and, and I, and you know, like I can, I can get along with many Arab people. I'm not, uh, I, I don't think that there are any, at the end of the day, people are people. But I think that due to the complicated history, it will be quite problematic. So again, mm-hmm. what is the right frame to criticize Israel? First, to acknowledge that the Jews has the uh, uh, the, the right for self-determination in their historically indigenous land, like any other people in the world. And if you don't think like this, sorry, my friend, you're anti-Semitic. If you manage to, to, to accept this and say, look, look, I understand this, you know, the establishment of Israel, was very problematic and very traumatic for the Palestinian population, but that's the history and that is what is happening now. Then we, th- then I think that your critique is valid and you can say, look, I, I criticize the policies of the state of Israel. I criticize how they, uh, they approach the Palestinian, but I don't criticize their existence. But, but there's a slippery slope here and, and I see many, many people nowadays, and that's kind of where I'm kind of very boiling with my critique, is that I see a lot of people that find it very difficult to publicly criticize the atrocities of Hamas, but are extremely vocal about what is happening, what the, the, the bombardment that Israel is doing in Gaza. And even though that, and, and I'm saying it not as something that is like just kind of to, to free my conscience from guilt, uh, I, I am feeling the pain of the people in Gaza. I can, like, I can, I can, I can, even though I'm really embedded now in my, my kind of ethnical pain, I can Mm. stop for a second and really like, you know, like read testimonials. I follow journalists from Gaza. I look at pictures, I look at images and I feel, wow, if I would have been there with my kids right now, it's horrible. And I feel this pain. And at the same time, I feel like that, that, you know, like that we have the right to defend ourselves from the military action of, of Hamas and to attempt rescue the, the, the refugees. But what I see around me is many people that are literally, you know, maybe in private, they will tell me, Hey, yeah, I criticize Hamas, but publicly they are unwilling to, to say, look, this is beyond the line, the line of legitimate resistance. It's not about freedom for Palestinian to murder and burn Jews. And, and actually, you know, on the, on the more extreme voices, you even see people that kind of justify it or even throw things like, for me, if you say something like, hey, what do you expect? Violence brings back violence. For me, man, you're, you're, you're sliding into a territory that is becoming anti-Semitic. And there's a very different between saying like, look, I'm really supporting the humanitarian struggle of the Palestinian for self-determination. 
But at the same time, I don't think that this struggle should end up with the deliberate murders of Jews. Now, one thing that you, are, that you are, and I'm telling you, but I'm shouting, you have to understand for everybody who is listening, there is a recording that is very telling of a Hamas, um, how the BBC like to call them militant, even though I think that they are purely like, I don't even have a name for that kind of behavior, that is calling, and this conversation has been uh, um, uh, taken from, uh, because it was on WhatsApp, so it, it, it has been monitored, and, and heard uh, in Israel of, of, of a Hamas uh, person calling his father and talking to him over WhatsApp and telling him, hey, Baba, I've just killed 10 Jews. Like, and, and he's like really excited telling his father. And his father is like, oh, may God protect you. And his mother is telling, oh, I wish I was there with you right now. And like there is a big celebration about the murders of Jews. Now, the guy didn't say, hey, mama, I killed uh, a bunch of settler colonial Zionists. He's not saying that. <laughs> he doesn't fight uh, uh, like a post-colonial post war. He's fighting a religious war against Jews. So, so for me, like the disability to criticize it puts you in support of people who are their ambitious is anti-Semitic, is, is pure hatred toward Jews. And, and even though you say like, hey, I don't hate Jews, that's, you know, like you can say, I don't hate Jews, but I if somebody would say, hey, I don't hate Jews, but I'm not against Nazis, that doesn't go along. You know, that's obvious that you cannot say, I'm not against Jews, but I'm not gonna oppose Nazi pogrom because they, they have their perspective, you know. It doesn't sit together. So if you cannot criticize Hamas, publicly and for me it should be so easy to do that you know like you, you just you know and for everybody who have no idea there are so many video documentation not of israeli documentation of of gopro cameras from hamas uh, terrorists who are documenting what they've done to israelis and it's horrific you know like for one for one week i couldn't sleep because of panic attacks at night after watching too many of these videos if you cannot do this very simple critique so my friend, you're in a very, very dark territory that could be, again, like intellectually, you can kind of have a discourse around it and like, you know, use a brilliant term like uh, settler colonialism and, you know, ethnical cleansing and all this uh, terminology. But in, in, on the ground, what you're supporting is a group of people who don't believe that another group of people should have the right to exist. That's what's happening in the ground. Now, there are similar voices in the Israeli side. There are very extreme uh, um, religious settlers <clears throat> who are driven by very similar forces like Hamas. They believe in Jewish superiority. They believe that we have the right to take by force our ancestral homeland, that we are fighting a religious war and that we as Jews has the right to uh, throw the Palestinians. And these settlers are committing atrocities right now in the West Bank. And our government that has few, uh, two, have one party that represents these people. And also our corrupt prime minister gave that, that one of them to be the responsible for the police forces. So he's the minister of interior security. And he's like promoting that kind of behavior. And that's for me, like that's for me, the biggest crime that that Israel is committing right now is not to not to address Jewish terrorism, 
and I will call it terrorism, like, you know, for, you know because it, that's what it is. It's people who are going and shooting civilians in the West Bank, torturing uh, Arabs for no reason, burning houses. And, and there's no excuse for that. You know, like for me, there's just no excuse for going and attacking a civilian for whatever reason, you know, like, and, but, but, you know, like, but the state of Israel at the moment is not being governed by these people fully. They are, they are, they are sleep. We are slipping into this very dangerous territory that Israel is starting, you know, that the Benjamin Netanyahu has started to flirt with very extreme forces, but we are not governed by these forces. It's, it's still different. When, like yesterday I had a very informative conversation with a good friend of mine that I will keep his name anonymous, whose father is um, part of what is called Rafael, which is a, a, a private uh, company that is responsible for development of weaponry. And his father was one of the people who was responsible for the creation of the Iron Dome. And I, I told, and his, so his father is like has direct conversation with the with the minister of uh, of security and yes. with the prime minister mm -hmm. and with the in with the high commandment in the army and I and I and I ask him so what what is going on right now because he he kind of overheard some conversation and his father shared with him certain things and I ask him like what is the emotional state that of all these generals because I think that for many people nowadays they see the bombardment in Gaza and what they imagine is that there are like a few angry Jewish commander who are like screaming for blood and let's murder Palestinians. That's what they imagine that is happening. But what is happening on the ground is a bunch of super professionals, people who are trying to calculate in the most precise way that you can calculate this horrible calculation of war. How do we compromise between the safety of the, of the hostages, the safety of Israelis who are living close to the areas where Hamas can shoot rockets, the safety of, of, of people who are living in close vicinity to, to Gaza that might be uh, victims of another uh, future attack from Hamas, and the safety of, of innocent civilians in Gaza. And that's a horrible calculation. You, nobody can make a good calculation between this, and every answer that you will come up with will be fucking ugly answer. And, but, but then I see people like, you know, screaming like, uh, stop the genocide, uh, cease fire now, stop the ethnical cleansing and all these uh, slogans that don't translate at all to what is happening on the ground. And on the ground, you have a bunch of people who are taking impossible decisions. And today there has been a very good news that IDF soldier on the ground have managed to rescue one Israeli woman who was a soldier who was one who was kidnapped by Hamas. And, and the motivation of the IDF is not to annihilate as many Palestinians as they can. If that was the aim of Israel, all the Palestinians would have been eliminated tomorrow because we have the, the capacity to do that. We have crazy air force. If we wanted to just kill every civilian there, we would have marched with tanks and air force and infantry, we would just murder all the Palestinians. That could have been a reality. On the other hand, we know what Hamas wants to do because they've just showed us what they want to do, but they don't have the capacity, thank God, to do that. So for me, that's why still morally and intellectually, I stand behind 
the IDF actions in Gaza, even though I understand that it's a horrible price to pay on the Palestinian side. And this price, maybe in the long term, will give birth to more Hamas supporters. But that's one of the uncertainties that is being played right now in this horrible game of war that is governed first and foremost by big uncertainty. I don't envy the people who are taking decisions now because, you know, these decisions are extremely difficult. But when I see some kind of a keyboard warrior sitting in their comfort of their uh, house in Europe, knowing that Israel is making a uh, genocide, I'm thinking to myself, you're not even entitled for an opinion, buddy. You have no idea what you're talking about. And, mm. and you know, principally, I wouldn't say it. I think everybody's entitled for their opinion. But when I say the situation is complex, I'm not saying it in order to deflect the critique on Israel and to continue bombing because I want many Palestinian people to be murdered. No, it's because it's fucking complicated to balance this tension between you have, you have, you have your people that are being held hostage by this murderous organization. You have all the citizens that could be, uh, could be murdered by missiles. You have all the potential people that could be murdered by another attack of Hamas. And at the same time, you have so many innocent civilians there. And I think that when, when you play war, to some extent, if you don't prioritize the decision from an ethnical perspective, you would probably wouldn't end up in a war. Because when we go into war, that's the point that we say like, look, we didn't manage to negotiate. We didn't manage to rise above our ethnical in, uh, impulses. And we ended up in an armed conflict. So you cannot expect, you know, like if I enter now your house and I start attacking you, I cannot expect you to rise into a humanitarian perspective and think about the other side. And I would say that the amount of individuals who can do it, who, you know, like, you know, we have the, the Jesus and the Buddhas as, as an archetype, the person that turns the other cheek, the person that says no to violence. But the amount of people that can really hold this perspective, you know, we can count them maybe on one hand if they, if they even exist. And, and right now, we are not in a place, in my opinion, to, to stop fighting, even though that it's, it's even though the, the tragedy that keeps happening to Palestinians is horrible. After we release the hostages, mm. then I think we can speak about, okay, should we keep press the war against Hamas despite the casualties or not? But that would be another phase. Now it's a phase that we are still, we have the potential to rescue people who have been kidnapped. And when I say people, the youngest is six months old. The oldest is above 80. So like, you know, there's a range of people, people there. We have the possibility to do something in order to bring them back home in safety. And we have the full right to do that. And again, like, like, you know, I went into a long rant. I'm sorry. It's way beyond no the problem. question, the question you asked me, yeah. but I really fe mm -hmm. fe felt the need to go there because I feel like, you know, again, I'm, when I'm criticizing my, my European friends and I made a few days ago, I made a post that I, I, I wrote like a provocative post where, which was going with the saying I wrote, 
see there is a there is a meme now that is running cease fire now and then i i made a graphics uh, on my computer cease posting bullshit and i wrote dedicated <laughs> to all my european and american friends on facebook yeah. And I threw it out there, and then people started to say, "Hey, we are not. Uh, can can't we criticize what is happening?" You know, mm. for me, it's not about that. For me, it's about like, look, you're an observer of a situation that you have really limited ability to understand what is happening. But if you're really on the side of human humans, and you really say, like, "Hey, look, I care for the. You know, I'm I'm coming from a humanitarian perspective. Please go ahead and check in with people who are involved and check how they are." and support them and this kind of support work is not glorious it, it's happening behind the scene it's writing people private messages calling them initiating conversation checking how people feel but putting a facebook profile picture with a palestinian flag or with an israeli flag or with whatever flag or putting mm -hmm. a cover image that he says like a certain slogan stop the genocide or free palestine or whatever that's not caring. That's virtue signaling. It's just showing to the world, I am on this side. And for me, that's fucking pretentious. And I don't give a shit about that. You want to you wanna be involved? Do what you, we are doing right now. Go and check in with people. Expand your mm. knowledge. Be interested. Dedicated time. That's work. Most of us don't have time. To change the profile picture, <coughs> you know, you get like credit very quickly. Ah, oh, another person who is on the right side. Mm. Yeah, it's identification again. Yeah, and, and again and, I, and again on all sides. Yeah, and and, I'm, yeah. and for me, I'm I'm gonna be you know I'm very direct person. You already know me from past mm -hmm. conversation we had. I'm yeah. gonna call it out. And again, I'm you know today I feel that the conversation that we had, that we are having right now, is very one-sided in the sense that I'm an Israeli and I see things from a very specific perspective, and I've already got the critique. Hey, maybe you should bring some Arabic person to speak to. This is not a talk show. It's not. I'm not a news channel. I'm not obliged to 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 balance things. But I would be very happy to speak to somebody who's <laughs> Palestinian or mm. uh, somebody who kind of feel like they are more representing the Arabic perspective, if mm. there is such thing as an Arabic perspective. Mm. You know, like I would be very happy to speak to anybody. And yeah, interesting. Uh, thank you for for that um, explanations on 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 how you come to the feeling that uh, that people are being anti-semitic when they like when they question the the Israeli state uh, as a whole that that's what i what really uh, what i understood from 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 your explanation was that that in your eyes it's really the problem if you if you question the existence of the state then it's yeah. you really feel like people are anti-Semitic because they deny the right uh, the Jews to have a for the Jews to have yeah and, and and that's a, that's kind of that's that's mm. the the current uh, side guys look yesterday there was a, a an airplane that landed by uh, an, an airplane that flew from the Tel Aviv airport that had to do an emergency landing in uh, Mahachkala the capital of Dagestan which is part of Russia but it's a very it's an Islamic place there's been a mob once the news came that there is an airplane from Tel Aviv, there's been a mob that ran into the airport, went through all the securities and started to look if there are Israelis, Jews on the plane. I don't know how all the people who have been there had Russian passport and they kind of like they, they didn't find any Jews. I don't want to imagine what would have happened to 
some miserable mm. people who have been in the mercy of this mob. And that's the reality that every time mm. that there is an escalation between Palestinian people and the state of Israel, it gives rise for anti-Semitism. That's just, mm. even though, again, you have the right to mm. criticize Israel, that's the reality. So it's really important that while you're mm. holding your anti-Israeli perspective and criticism, to really stand clearly on grounds that object anti-Semitism. Otherwise, you might, you know, like, if you, if you, if you find it cool to wear a kafiyah, which is a desert, what we call here in Europe, desert scarf. If you find it cool to wear one of those and you march in the street with a Palestinian flags because you think you're like a kind of a radical leftist and you are for the oppressed, and then you shout, from the river to the sea, Palestinian will be free. My friend, you are supporting the grounds, the, the ideological grounds for ethnical cleansing of Jews. That's what you're doing. Hmm. And, and for me, that's not okay. And I hope that mm. I, I've managed to clearly explain it also intellectually and not just emotionally why I yeah. think like that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Madan. I think this is a good point to maybe end our conversation uh, yeah. because I, I, we need to go to bed. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> totally. I think my wife will be proud but also angry that uh, I, I, I'm not joining the plans that we had earlier <laughs> but I kind of thought to yeah. give an hour but we are already conversing almost for two hours for um, two yeah 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 cool. yeah. Uh, yeah I want to say thank you because you know like normally I'm kind of in your role interviewing people and I don't often uh, kind of get pleasure. the opportunity to to rent yeah. my opinions <laughs> yeah yeah that no, was uh, a pleasure and it was very insightful and interesting for me and yeah thanks for for the sharing and yeah i i maybe let me say uh, uh, some final words i i yeah. just i I, t I just wish for for humanity basically to to develop past this um, vicious cycle of identification and trauma basically in which we are um, many of us are seem to be caught and and also the picture that came to my mind was maybe a question that we won't answer uh, tonight, but maybe to put here as an open question. If, if uh, like a big part of the world would offer to the Jews to come and to would there be a lot of Jews leaving Israel and leaving the 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 decades of of fighting and the decades of you know being subject to hatred from all sides around them or would they stay and and because the land is really they're really so connected to that land you know mm. that, that that's also an interesting hypothetical question that came up to, yeah. to my mind when uh, and maybe would there be the more liberal leftist Jews then um, be attracted to leave the country or would they are they also so identified with the land there? Yeah. But of course, that is completely hypothetical and not really to 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 be answered. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that could be uh, uh, something to to think about maybe next time that we converse yeah. here in yeah. public or also in a private conversation. Or private, yeah. yeah. So yeah thank hey, you, Madan. Thank and you as well. 
Um, yeah, uh, have a good night. Good and, night and thank you for the time. Uh, and I yeah. uh, hope to see you soon in a, in a more in uh, friendly dancing yeah. environment. Thank you, yeah. my friend. Me too. Yeah. Good, good night. night. Bye-bye. If you want to see more precious and insightful moments, make sure to check our short clips playlist. To see longer interviews, check out the full episode playlist just below it. And to be notified for all future videos, click the subscribe button and don't forget to hit the notification bell. See you on the next episode.